afraid I might not quite live up to the excitement of my walk-up music. But, hey, welcome. Uh, good morning, everybody, or good evening, good afternoon. If you're catching us online, wherever and whenever you are, we have people all over the world who are catching us live right now. It's an amazing thing. When COVID hit uh, and we had to spend all the money to do cameras and up our online presence and all that, um, I was skeptical, to be honest with you, but then I've just seen God do amazing things. We have churches, whole churches in Africa, Tanzania, uh, specifically in Mozambique that are watching us live online um, all over the world, all over the country, in our own backyard. We are reaching an audience with the gospel message more than I ever could have thought. So that's, that's an example when the Bible says God will take what the enemy intended for evil and use it for good. That's one of those things. And so it's just wonderful to be in that. You guys are a part of that. Welcome, glad that you are here. If you're a first-time visitor, uh, a special welcome to you. I'm glad that you guys are here. I love looking out and seeing new faces. Um, But along with that idea of new faces comes like, I need to slow my roll a little bit and make sure that everybody's all on the same page. Um, We teach a little differently at Discover than maybe some churches do. The style is called expository. We, We put the Bible first and foremost, and we'll work through entire books of the Bible. It's my job as a pastor to make it clear, to make it make sense. There's so much in Scripture that you read, you go, well, that's a good idea, but how do I apply that? Or I don't even know. Anybody ever read Scripture and go, I have no idea what's going on there? And so what you do is just go, well, moving on, turn the page, move to the next thing that I hope to be able to understand. It's my job to make that clear. And so I hope that I'm able to do that for you and we can all follow through because the Gospels especially are so amazing. The whole entirety of Scripture is just mind-blowing. The more you study it, the more amazing it is. And so if I can do nothing but just instill a desire in you to maybe learn more about Scripture, that's, I really want you to be able to catch fire on that, kind of like um, like Gabe and I are, and like a lot of our Bible study people, they, they just get excited about Scripture. So I hope I can do that. We are in a place, we have, it's been a minute since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We took a month off and we did um, a Christmas series like a lot of churches do. We did that, talked about uh, being heralds of Jesus coming. And then last week, uh, Pastor Gabe got to teach. So thank you, Pastor Gabe, wherever you are. Thank you. And I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did too. Um, Gave me a little bit of a break. But now I am ready and I am reinvigorated and I'm excited to jump back into the Gospel of Mark. The Gospels are cool, especially if you look at them, because there's four different Gospels. If you know much about the Bible at all, you probably know at least there's four different Gospels, right? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels talk about the good news of Jesus, but they talk about it from a different perspective, largely. Each one of the writers of those Gospels had a particular audience in mind, Okay, so they're not all written for the same people. They are written specifically to emphasize a certain aspect of Jesus' character, a certain aspect of what he did. Um, and the Gospel of Mark is one of those. The Gospel of Mark is, is a little different, and I love it, because Mark, Mark is very concise. Mark will say, and the greatest miracle of all time happened. And then they had lunch. And, and that's it. He doesn't expand on those things. It's very much... This miracle happened, moving on, and that's done for a purpose. We call it Jesus the Servant Messiah because Mark is very much 
interested in explaining to his audience, this is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah that's been promised, but it's not the Messiah you were looking for. The one they were looking for, if we're talking about the Jewish culture, would ride in on a white horse with an army behind him and and take care of all their enemies. That's what the Jewish people were looking for. And Mark says, no, this Messiah is very different. This Messiah is first and foremost a servant, humble, serving. That's the emphasis of all of this gospel. So the idea is not to draw attention to Jesus specifically, but to the source of that power. And that source of that power, that through the Holy Spirit now, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and that enables you to then go forth and do the very same things that we see being accomplished throughout the Galilee in Jesus' ministry. That's why the Gospel of Mark is one of my favorite. So as Jesus and his disciples, they travel around. Now we're in, we're in chapter 3. We're working our way through it slowly. What we see is Jesus and his disciples traveling around the Galilee performing miracles. They're, they're doing various things. Again, through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're performing these miracles, but not to draw attention to themselves, really. But what we see happening here is this dynamic of, of disruption. People's days, people's lives, people's paradigms of what's going on are being disrupted in a big way. And few things draw attention to somebody than disrupting somebody's day, right? Anybody ever go through an entire day? I know I have, so I'll just say this. You get up in the morning, you get dressed, hopefully you get dressed, and then you go to work or you go to school and you do your thing, and then you come home and you have dinner and then whatever you do, and then next thing you know, you find yourself in bed and you're like, what did I do today? Is it just me? Like, I'll go through a whole day and I'll go, I don't even know for sure how I got from there to here, but here I am. The whole day is just kind of a blur because it fell into this routine of what every other day looks like. Many days are like that. They shouldn't be, but it's just human nature. Sometimes they are like that. But any disruption, any disruption to that, all of a sudden throws off your whole day, right? Whether it's the very first thing, you go down to the kitchen, oh no, I was supposed to stop and get coffee yesterday. Now we're out of coffee. Okay, that's a code red alert at our house. But maybe it's the, the battery's dead in the car. Or, oh, I got to stop for gas before I go into work. I meant to do it yesterday, but I didn't. I got to do it today. Now I'm going to be late. Whatever it is, those little disruptions cause us to, in a lot of ways, snap out of our, of our days that we often operate in and focus in. Now, we can choose to look at those in one of two ways. We can either see it as an inconvenience, or we can look at it and say, this could be life-changing if I allow it. Now, something as simple as I'm out of coffee or I've got a flat tire in the car, how can that be life-changing? It's all about our attitude and how we look at the things that come our way that cause that. What we're going to see here as we go through Scripture here, we're going to see that being a disciple of Jesus is not something that we can or should go through our day in a daze. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to be inconvenient. If you want to be a disciple, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, we're going to talk today about the difference between a follower and a disciple and an apostle. We're going to talk about all those differences as we go through today. But 
make no mistake, if you're going to call yourself a disciple of Jesus and if you're going to live that life, it's going to be inconvenient. We're going to talk about it. Sounds exciting, right? If you're not a follower already, you're like, yes, I want inconvenience in my life. You have to balance that with the amazing blessing that comes along with it. That's what we're going to talk about. It can be life-changing in such a glorious and miraculous way that only God could orchestrate. No self-help book, no YouTube self-help videos, no, um, no New Year's resolution, no conference, nothing could change your life like this can. So we're going to talk about it. So checking back in where we were before we took a break for Christmas, we saw Jesus and his disciples traveling around the Galilee region performing miracle after miracle after miracle. He would go into a synagogue and he would teach He'd perform a miracle, and then he would leave. And almost always, he would say, now don't tell anybody what just happened. And we know that the surest way to make sure everybody finds out about something is to tell somebody, don't tell anyone. As soon as you say, now don't tell anybody what you saw, that guarantees it's getting out. So that's what we see happening here. And as Jesus and his disciples travel around this region, they're gathering people who are following him. Some people are just curious, like, hey, let's go. It's entertainment. Let's go see the show. Let's go see what this guy does next. Some of them are those. Some of them are are true disciples. They're looking at this teacher, this rabbi, Jesus, and they're going, man, he he is saying some good things. I want to follow him. I want to emulate him. I want to learn from him. I want to truly be a disciple. And so there's those. So some out of just simple curiosity or entertainment value, some are genuinely seeking the truth. But either way, this crowd is growing. It's growing from just a small handful of people that he originally walked down the seashore and said, you follow me, you follow me. It's growing from that exponentially. And at this point, there's probably hundreds that are following him around. It's hard to keep that a secret as you travel around a region like that, right? So it's becoming really impossible to ignore. They're driving out demons. They're healing. They're doing all kinds of things like this, and it can't be ignored anymore. So where we left off, Mark chapter 3, verse 4 says, and I'll just read a couple of these to you. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So remember the setting for that, he and his disciples went into a synagogue, and they're teaching. Synagogues are very democratic. If you want to get up and teach or say something, you can. It's Jesus' turn, and he's saying that. And without any prompting, without any challenge, he throws out that question in the middle of teaching. So he's teaching. And it's one of those rhetorical questions kind of that's made to to make you think. Okay? Now, the people in the audience generally don't like to be challenged. Probably no more than most of us today do. If you've got a a paradigm or a mindset or something that you believe, it's hard to change that, isn't it? More so than even being hard to change it, most of us don't like to have our ideas and those things that we call our, our bedrock foundational knowledge or beliefs, we don't like to have those challenged for the most part. Now, there are some who very much enjoy that, that debate and that open banter, and, and they, they really love that, but most of us don't really love that process. Now, hopefully, that those beliefs or those decisions you've come to have been well thought out. 
you've, you've researched it, you've prayed about it, you've thought it, you've learned, and then you've come to, okay, this, this is one of the things I believe. But there's the other side of that, where we, I've met and I've talked to people who very firmly and adamantly believe, and they will argue it to the death, something that they heard on social media. Like, is that really the source that you want with that information? You want to plant your flag on that hill and you want to die on that hill. It's not even a belief you have. It's a belief somebody else has that you have decided that you're going you're gonna to stand in line with that. Well, if that's the case, then you're probably one of those people that don't really like to have that challenged, Okay. And even more so if you're one who's researched it, well thought out, like the Pharisees who are in the crowd in the synagogue this day. They're there. They have spent their whole life learning Scripture, learning the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. They were well-versed in that, and they had a very, very well thought out and well-discussed and well-researched idea of what the Messiah was going to look like and how all these things worked. And all of a sudden they're being challenged with a question that they don't really have a good answer for. That's got to be irritating. Would that not be irritating? That's what's going on here. So we see this. He poses this question, and after this long, uncomfortable silence, Jesus continues. Now, Mark 3, uh, verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Remember, there was a man with a shriveled hand that was standing there. Stretch out your hand. And as he stretched it out, his hand was restored. So he didn't even have to touch him. There was no, take this balm and apply it to your hand three times a day. There was no, let's all dance in a circle or sing a song. It was like, stretch out your hand. And as he did it, the hand was restored. Right in full view of everybody there. So, of course, witnessing that miraculous act the Pharisees that were in the crowd had to have said to themselves, gosh, maybe we've been wrong about this Jesus guy. Maybe he's real. Is that what they said? Just the opposite. I know you're all thinking just the opposite, but nobody wants to answer out loud. What if I'm wrong? What if this is a trick? No. As usual, their stubborn hard-heartedness blinded them to what was going on, and their response was this, Mark 3, 6. It's our first one on the screen. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. All because he healed somebody. Luke, in Luke's gospel, he adds this little detail. They were filled with senseless rage. All over the fact that a man who had been crippled was immediately and miraculously healed in front of their eyes. And that made them mad. You know why? Because it was inconvenient. Because it upset their, their paradigm, their thoughts. And they all of a sudden had to reconcile this. And they didn't like reconciling anything. They were the ones who told other people how to reconcile. So, bottom line, things were about to get real for Jesus and his disciples. There was no way to hide it or keep it quiet. So we move into our section of scripture for this week then, where the twelve... Are chosen. The 12 is usually a reference to the 12 apostles. And that's what's happening right here. So knowing, Jesus knowing that he was now a target, there was no keeping it quiet. Things were just going to snowball from this point. He decides and knows that he has to choose those that he's going to call apart from the crowd. 
Now remember, there's a crowd of hundreds. He knows he's going to call these aside, and he's going to call them into something higher. And that's the dynamic that's happening here. Now, question, what is step one before you make any critical decision? Throw it out there. Don't be afraid. You should pray. You should pray, right? You should pray before you make any serious decision. Really, any decision, but especially a a serious decision like this. Now, let's look at this. Jesus had hand-picked the first core group, okay? So he very prayerfully, very deliberately chose those, that core group. But then there had been others who caught up with the group and who became kind of intermingled with the group. The group was growing. Again, there's some that are just curious, some that are genuine in their desire, but not quite to the level of what the, the soon-to-be apostles were. But rather than Jesus to go, well, okay, it's a given that these guys are going to be a part of my 12 because I picked them. Rather than to do even that, which would seem obvious to most of us, he retires. Mark 3.13, he went up on the mountain and summoned those to whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Now, that's typical, typical Mark, very just like one sentence that explains it all. Let's look at some of the other Gospels. If we look at, at Luke... Luke kind of expands on the picture just a little bit and adds some detail. Luke 6.12 says, Now it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer with God. So Jesus had handpicked these guys, but rather than just go, okay, you guys come with me, I chose you. He went up on the mountain and spent the whole night in prayer with God over this very subject. What Do I choose these? Are these the right ones? What do I do here? Question, when you're making an important decision, those of you who pray about important decisions, how long do you let it simmer before you act on that decision? For me, it's pretty much instant. I'll pray about it and go, do I hear a no? No. Then here I go. (laughs) Those of you who have kids know that dynamic. Well, I didn't hear you say no, so I'm taking it as a yes. That's what I would do. That's what a lot of us do. I try not to, but sometimes it just works that way. Jesus spent the whole night in prayer about the selection of these apostles. Now, it's important to note when we go further, these, the ones that he chose said he called those he wanted to himself. Now, They weren't brought to him in chains. He didn't call down and say, hey, wrap up these guys, put them in a cage and bring them to me. I've got something for them. They made the choice to come to him. They'd already made the choice to follow him, but so had a hundred others who were gathered around. They'd made the choice to follow him around. Was this curiosity? Was this genuine discipleship? I truly want to learn from you, teacher. Or was it something else? I think that's what he had to to pray about. And so he did that, Mark 3, 14. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Now, the number 12 is a significant thing. And if you were a, a Hebrew in that culture, which these guys were, the number 12 would have reminded you of the original 12 tribes. It would have been 
kind of a source of pride, sort of a source of, of uh, encouragement to them, kind of like if we were talking about um, the original 13 colonies. You know, if you're, if you're an American citizen, 13 colonies would kind of remind you and inspire you maybe of those originals. So this, this selection of the 12 would have had kind of that same effect on these guys. But again, Luke in his gospel even gives us a little bit more of a fuller picture. Luke 6.13, and when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Okay, that's big, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So they're all disciples. They're all following him around. Now, some of the curious, maybe they're not even disciples yet. But out of that, he separated these out. So let's look at the difference between just curiosity, someone who's curious, like, yeah, I'll hang out, see what he's got to say, versus a disciple, then versus an apostle. Let's talk about that. So remember, Dozens, if not hundreds, following him around. The word disciples, if you translate that into Greek, it's a Greek word, methetes. And what it means, the definition is a learner or someone who tries to emulate their teacher in both doctrine and lifestyle. Okay, so a, a disciple can be, you can be a disciple of many people. Somebody that you emulate, though, in doctrine and lifestyle. So did that cover was that everybody that was following Jesus around? Were they all interested in that level of commitment to him? No. So a lot of them were just, again, curious. Let's see what happens next. Some of them were Pharisees and Sadducees that were, and Sanhedrin and stuff that were hiding in that group or mingling with that group. They were actually opposed to it. So they far from all of them being disciples. Then we go to the next level of apostle. Apostle translates in the Greek word apostolos, which means the definition is a delegate or representative specifically commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel. That's a much higher level. That means that Jesus chose them from among this group of people who wanted to emulate him in lifestyle and doctrine and teaching, wanted to be like Jesus. But these were specially called apart. Now I want to bring out a, a, a note here that's gaining a lot of traction lately. There are a lot of preachers, I'll just call them, around the world who are calling themselves apostles of Jesus. They are not apostles of Jesus. There are no apostles today. There are people who have been called to preach, absolutely. I believe I've been called to preach. I'm not an apostle of Jesus Christ. To be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you have to be specifically commissioned by Jesus. Okay, there are a lot of people out there calling themselves apostles, and that is not a biblically accurate term. So, but these 12, these 12 were apostles. Jesus called them specifically by name. Come to me. You are a part of my inner circle. Now, another teaching for another day, he even takes a few of them and pulls them even closer to him. We'll talk about that another time. But these 12 were set apart. And in addition to, as 14 said, so he could send them out to preach, verse 15 says, and to have authority to cast out the demons. Anybody notice something specifically interesting about the timing of what's going on here? He gave them authority to cast out demons. Let me read another one, actually, before you answer that. Let's look at Matthew's account of this same thing. Matthew 10, 5 through 8 says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, 
Do not go on a road to the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. So he's giving them authority to cast out demons, to raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse leprosy. He's giving them all that authority. Anybody immediately come to mind like why that's interesting besides the obvious? The day of Pentecost had not come yet. So this is the first time where the Holy Spirit is coming upon the apostles to go out and perform these acts. Now later, in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon and indwells in all the disciples, giving them, slash us, power to do those very things in the name of Jesus. But here, this hasn't been a general everyone receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon these disciples for a specific Reason And their mission was to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, Gentiles, meaning everybody other than, than cultural Jews, would be taken care of later. We know that comes later in Scripture, but that was their job. Now, that also tells us why they didn't need to speak in different tongues. Remember what happened at Pentecost? Fires of tongue, tongues of flame came down, and they were immediately starting to speak in other tongues. That wasn't necessary for the mission that they were given right here. It was simply to go out and show the power of the Messiah to the nation of Israel. Give them one more chance to understand that he is the Messiah and to come to him. That was their mission. That's what they were empowered and charged to do. But that event then clearly shows us how the Holy Spirit works in two different ways. Still does today. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we receive Christ, okay, we get the gifts of the Spirit, whatever those are. Another teaching for another day to go down the list of what all those are, but those things are things that we then generally operate in because that's a part of of who we are. But then there's that second experience with the Holy Spirit where he can come upon you for a specific reason, for a specific task. I have seen things like that happen. I don't generally operate in a gift of healing, but I have laid hands on a man who was crippled and could not get out of bed because the Holy Spirit told me to. And I did it, and he rose and he walked. That's how the Holy Spirit can come upon you. Now, if I were to go out and said, hey, this is cool, let's do this again, it probably wouldn't work because the Holy Spirit didn't tell me to do that. That's not a gift that I generally operate in. So two different experiences, and we'll expand on that in, in future teachings. But Jesus names the 12, and he gives them specific names in some cases. Mark 3, 16. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, Simon was far and away the most popular Jewish male name at the time in their culture. There were Simons everywhere, which is why you see Simon the, Simon Peter. Simon usually has another name with it to help differentiate which Simon we're talking about. The word Peter, though, Simon, who he gave, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter, it's a Greek name, and when you pronounce it in Greek, it's Petros, but it means rock. It literally means rock. So Jesus sees Simon, and he says, I'm going to call you the rock. That's a cool name. If Jesus is going to call you something, I want to be called the rock. Mark 3.17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanger. 
Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Interesting note about that. First of all, James and John were also pretty common names at that time. But Boanerges is an ancient, like really old Aramaic term. And what we see in here where it's got the parentheses and it says, which means sons of thunder, that's not an editorial ad later. Mark actually said that and translated it for his audience who might not know ancient Aramaic. Jesus called him that. Here's what it means. And he's doing that. That's, that's just one of the things that makes Scripture so authentic to me. Now, the sons of thunder were probably given that nickname. Again, brothers. First of all, brothers. Anybody either a brother or have brothers in their family? What constantly happens? I don't know any family of brothers who don't fight and don't kind of get themselves whipped up into different things. I think these guys were probably very much the same way. They were zealous. They were emotional. They were a little hot-tempered. We know they're hot-tempered because if we look at Luke's gospel, Luke 9.54, read that on your own if you want to. Jesus is going into a town, and they refuse to come out and give him the proper welcome. So James and John go, all right, let's call down the thunder on this town and destroy them all. Jesus is like, simmer down. Okay? All they did is just not come welcome me. That doesn't, doesn't rise to the point of let's annihilate them. But they're like, let's do it. So that's who these guys are. Mark 3.18. And Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, by the way, <clears throat> is not the same as Simon Peter. Different guy, right? Like I said, this Simon is even more passionate than Peter is. You see, Peter can be kind of, uh, Simon Peter can be kind of impetuous. This guy, when they use the term zealot, today we would probably call him um, maybe an anarchist, something like that. He was all wrapped up in, in like, let's, let's fight the establishment and fight the man and fight for what's right. He was very much like in your face all the time about what he thought was right. That's what they call Simon the zealot. That's who he is. Now, Thaddeus, we don't often hear a lot about Thaddeus and what he did, but we do hear a lot about the Greek name, or about the Hebrew name. Thaddeus is the Greek name. The Hebrew name is Jude. Jude, who wrote an epistle named Jude. He's also a half-brother of Jesus. Mark 3.19, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. That begs a question to me all the time, and people ask this all the time. Jesus handpicked Judas. It wasn't like Judas snuck into the crowd and he let him stay. He handpicked Judas, who he knew would later betray him. Or did he know? Did Jesus not know that, Jesus, that Judas was going to betray him later? Have you ever asked yourself that question or been asked that question? Why would you pick somebody to be in your inner circle knowing that they're going to betray you? That's a, that's a question that I've wrestled with a lot. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, but it fulfilled his purposes. Number one, fulfilled the purposes of God. The prophecies, all the Old Testament prophecies about that happening, but more so to be an instrument that God could use and an instrument in a way that only Judas could fulfill. 
So Jesus drew him into that inner circle. That does not mean that Judas was a puppet controlled by God. Okay? A lot of people say that. Was Judas a puppet? He didn't have choices. And he started out as a good guy, but somehow God manipulated him or tricked him into doing this bad thing? No. God is omniscient. That word omniscience is it's a big term, and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around. But what it means in its core is that we have the free will, as did Judas, to make any choice we want to make. God knows ahead of time whether you're going to make the right choice or not. Kind of like if you have a small child and you put candy right in front of them. They still have the free will to do it, but you're pretty sure they're going to do it, even if you tell them no. It's still his free choice, but God knows us better than than we know ourselves in every case. And so he knew that Judas was not going to be able to resist the temptation when it came to him. But he had that choice right up until the time. We remember the scene when Jesus dips the bread and offers it to Judas, saying, the one who I give this bread to is the one who's going to betray me. Judas, right up until that moment, had the choice to go, you know what, no, I'm not going to do that. But he followed through with it as God and his omniscience knew that he would. Now, that's it for this section of Scripture. Luke's gospel records that right after this selection, uh, Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Mark's gospel doesn't really go into that because he's not interested in portraying Jesus as, as the king come to earth. Because the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the kingdom manifesto in many ways. He's not interested in emphasizing that aspect of Jesus, but his servanthood, his God come to earth for us. So the Beatitudes aren't included in Mark's. Now, these men, looking at these men that were chosen, they're nothing particularly special to the naked eye. Most of them were just regular guys, kind of inconspicuous for the most part, probably Paul, which is not a part of this original 12, but later he was probably a big deal in a different way. But other than that, these other guys were pretty much unknown to almost anybody except for their friends. But Jesus saw more in them than they saw in themselves. So we look at these guys, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, he was a doer, man. He, I identify with him. He was, he was a man of action, like, let's get it done. Whatever has to happen, let's get it done. That was Peter. He was kind of a hothead, uh, sometimes kind of a brawler, impetuous. Um, but Jesus saw more in him. The na- from the very moment he gave him the name Peter, remember he says, upon this rock I'll build my church. Peter's the first head of the Jerusalem church. James and John, the sons of thunder, again, a couple of hotheads, leap before you look kind of guys. Jesus saw more in them. Andrew was just a co-owner of a fishing boat with his brother Simon. But what Jesus saw was the founder of the first Christian church in Greece. That's what Andrew went on to do. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Most likely, we don't know this for sure, but where they were and what they were doing, probably just simple fishing boat crew. They didn't even own their own boat. They were just workers on somebody else's fishing boat. But Jesus saw more. Jesus saw sons of God in full 
of faith. Thaddeus, half-brother of Jesus, refused, we know in Scripture, actually refused to believe that Jesus was even the Messiah. Now, it's hard to blame Thaddeus for that because, like, those of you who have brothers, if your brother came to you and said, I'm the Messiah, you'd go, whatever. Uh, I think any of us would do that, right? But although he at first saw Jesus more of his, as his brother than anything else, what Jesus saw when he called him was the author of the epistle Jude. Jude, by the way, if you know your Bible, teaches specifically about apostasy. So what a great choice to be the one who wrote that epistle. Simon the Zealot, again, today we'd call him an anarchist, somebody that were like, you're a little too out there for me to deal with. I'd rather just have some people that are pliable and I can mold. Simon the Zealot was absolutely not that, but Jesus saw more. Matthew, a tax collector who was despised and hated by both sides, both his own people and the people he worked for. Everybody hated Matthew, but Jesus saw more. Judas, then again, as we said, destined to betray Jesus, Jesus knew that he would serve a purpose no one else could. So he saw, he, Jesus, saw so much more in these guys than they themselves ever would have thought possible. So what made them special? What made these guys special was that they were willing to set aside their skepticism and who they saw themselves as long enough to see what Jesus had for them. Rather than to just go, and they could have easily, like, no, you're looking for somebody else. I've, I've got nets to fold. I've got a career. I've got a family. I've got, I got things to do. I can't drop all that and follow you. They had every opportunity to do that, but they were willing to walk away from the safety and security of what they knew, humble as it was, simple as it was, to give up any sense of control that they had, walk into the unknown based simply on a promise. Anybody remember what that promise was? Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. The promise wasn't, follow me, and I'll make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. It was a promise of servanthood. Follow me, and I'm going to make you work. Follow me, and life will be inconvenient and difficult. How many of us would follow somebody? How many self-help books start out like that? Follow me, and your life's going to suck more from this point on. <laughs> Yay. Jesus told them, you're going to have trouble they're going to hate you. You're going to have to set aside everything you know to follow me. And they followed him. That's what made them different. Jesus saw more in them. And he sees more in you. He sees more in you. My question is, who has the world told you that you are? That's a big question. That could be parents when you're young speaking words over you that are not who Jesus says you are. That could be as an adult. As in, in high school, I had people speaking things over me that if I had listened to that, I don't, wouldn't have made it past high school, honestly. Jesus saw more. Have people told you that you're 
not smart enough. You're not charismatic enough. You're not bright enough. You don't speak well enough. Um, your job is, is worthless. You're too old. You're too young. Has that been spoken over you? And more importantly, have you believed it? Because if you have, that is not what Jesus says about you. Jesus sees more in you, and he calls you to more. Scripture is full of promises that you are so much more to him than just what the world says you are. But the enemy wants to keep you down. He wants you to take that lie that was spoken over you whenever it was and take that to heart and say, that's who I am. And until I'm no longer that, I'm no good for doing anything else. Jesus didn't immediately tell these guys, you have to quit being who you are. He said, no, who you are is who you're called to be. Let's use it. And that's the same thing he speaks over you. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's break that into two and talk about it really quick here. First of all, in in the New American Standard, which is the translation I use, whenever it's all caps, that is referring back to an Old Testament scripture. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Stop. That's who Jesus says you are chosen specifically and if you believe that then you can move on but if you read that and go and not me that's someone better smarter faster taller better looking than me that's who that's meant for if that's where you are you need to get past believing that lie so that you can move on to the next part the next part so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You can't proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness when you're still walking in it. Jesus calls us to the light and he says you are who he says you are, not who the world says you are. I want to close this message by reading from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. If you want to follow along with me, you can I'm just going to read it to you, though. And I'm going to take the corporate, because it was written to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to take the corporate, you all, and make it personal. So I'm just going to change the word, the word us to you. And just let these words that Paul spoke just soak over you. This is who God says you are. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he favored you in the Beloved. In him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your wrongdoings according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on you. 
In all wisdom and insight, he made known to you the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in him, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heaven and things on earth. In you, we also have, in him, you have also obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in the Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a first installment of your inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Church, that's who God says you are. That's who God says you are. And if you read that and you go, I don't think I'm there, then you are believing a lie. Because what you need for that word to apply to you is you need to say yes and believe in Jesus Christ. If you say yes, I believe that you are sent to the earth to die for my sins. I believe that you were sent for me and salvation is found through you. If you say those words and can say those words, then that 100% applies to you. And no lie spoken by man or demon can override that truth. That is who God says you are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you... You know us better than we know ourselves. And you have spoken words over us of of purpose, words of love, words of, of a future, words of joy, words of power, words of affirmation. That's who you say we are. Lord, I repent of any of those times. I have believed what someone else has spoken over me, over what you say about me. Lord, I pray right now that you show anyone who is sitting here listening to my voice, show them lies that they have been believing. Show them a lie that has been spoken over them, something that they have taken to heart and chosen to speak over themselves, something that they have believed that does not line up with what you say. Lord, and I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Any lie that stands against who you say I am, Lord, I rebuke that right now in your name. And I accept the truth of who you say I am. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You had a plan for me. Whether my parents knew it or not, whether my friends know it or not, you had a plan for me from before I was ever even conceived. And that plan is so much more than I could ever imagine. But Lord, I want to walk in that plan, so show me. Help me overcome my doubts about who I am and walk boldly into the future that you have for me, into the plan and the purpose that you have for me. Let me step into that and away from the lies that I've been believing for far too long. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go into communion right now. First of all, before I get there, we have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for overcoming some of those beliefs, those strongholds, those long-held beliefs that can sound like our own thoughts after a while. 
If you need help overcoming those things or recognizing them, we have a prayer team in the back. Go see them. If you need prayer um, for healing or for, for peace or a loved one, anything that's going on with you, people would be happy to pray for you. If you're out there online, you can put it in the chat boards. We will we'll bring it before our prayer team and we will pray for you. We're also going to take communion together. What better way to, to seal our alliance with Christ and rebuke the lies that the enemy tells us than to take communion. Communion is partaking in the body of Christ, which was broken for you, and the blood which covers your sins, makes you clean and redeems you in the eyes of God. Opening the door to all of those promises. That's what the blood of Christ did. And when we take communion together, we say yes to that and no to the lies of the enemy. And we do that every single time because we need to. Accepting the truth one time isn't enough because the enemy's always there chirping at you. Let's say no to those lies and yes to the truth today. So at the crosses, we have bread and juice and gluten-free crackers. You can serve yourself there or serve your family. Up front here, Pastor Gabe and myself have wine and bread and crackers. We would be happy to serve you if you want to be served. The only requirement if you're new here is that you say yes to Jesus. If that's you, we invite you to take communion with us now. And as the worship team plays on, we can worship together. You can stay in your seat and pray, or you can move about and take communion. This is a time to respond to what God has put on your heart. Amen? Thank you, guys.